Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. And thank you, Pastor Ryan, for the privilege of uh, being able to share on these couple of weekends. I probably ought to start with a word of confession. Perhaps, knowing the context, it may be a word of repentance. And that is, I played uh, football for Wake Forest University. Now, I know this is not a popular topic in a Clemson territory, but it is the reality. That may tell you how not good I was in high school at football. Uh, Wake Forest not known as a powerhouse. We actually had a pretty good team this year, and then Clemson spoiled it. Typically, and I happened to be at that game, sad moment to say the least. Now, the reason that I went to Wake Forest is my dad was a Baptist preacher. I mean a country Baptist preacher who was the Baptist to the bone Baptist preacher. And you may not know this, but Wake Forest was barely Baptist. I actually wanted to play at Duke. They had a linebacker coach. I played defensive linebacker. And they had a linebacker coach who, who I really wanted to play with, and I, I actually was going to sign with Duke, and I was in the head coach's office, called my dad on the phone, and I said, now, Dad, if I sign with Duke today, would you pull for me? He said, not a chance, boy. Now, I'm telling you, you didn't know this, but Duke was marginally Methodist. I think it's kind of fascinating. We have two ACC teams that were started by denominations, Wake Forest and Duke, and they're mascots are blue devils and demon deacons. Now, I don't know exactly who came up with that name, but uh, it may have been some Baptist preacher who had a couple of those, but not saying anything about deacons, obviously going to talk about them in a moment. So uh, my dad was one of those uh, fans that is a fanatic, but being a cheap Baptist preacher, he tried to find the cheapest way to get in to watch me play, and during that time, Royal Ambassadors, you remember when some of you are my age, you can identify, uh, we had GAs, had Sunbeams. Any of you in a Sunbeam? I was a little Sunbeam. Well, we got some back there. And so um, we had RAs, Royal Ambassadors, GAs, Girls Auxiliary. I, I was in everything as a Baptist preacher's kid, you are. Tried to get in GAs. Dad wouldn't let me in that group. Not quite sure why, but at any rate, my dad would, on Saturdays, now in Wake Forest at that time, if any of you know much about Wake Forest history and Winston-Salem, we didn't have a stadium. We played uh, football on Saturdays in Bowman Gray Stadium, which was a stock car racing track on Friday night, and they would fill it up on Friday for stock car racing. We had empty it on Saturday for Wake Forest football, so... There weren't many folks there, but you could get in for two bucks. If you had an RA and a two bucks, you could get in. And so my dad would go out, and if he didn't have enough RAs to go, he'd recruit some off the street, and he would come, and they would put them down in the horseshoe where you couldn't see the field anyway. And didn't matter to my dad because he was a strategic planner. By the end of the first quarter, he has made his way to the 30-yard line because there wasn't 
anybody between the horseshoe end and the 30-yard line. By halftime, he's 50-yard line, fourth row, because once the band finished at Wake, it was pretty much over during that day. And the good news is, in the second half, I played. Now, some of you know what that means. Game was out of reach, out of concern, out of question. And they're now preparing for next year and clearing the bench. Now, my dad doesn't know it or doesn't care because uh, the good news is I played in the second half. Being a sophomore, you couldn't play as a freshman at that time. They were putting us in, trying to prepare for the next season. And my dad, if I happened to get in on the tackle, he'd leap to his feet and shout out the top of his lungs, that's my boy, that's my son. Downright embarrassing, just daddy, me, and no cheerleaders in the second half. We were playing a pretty close game, about 56 to nothing against Maryland, and my dad's still streaming at the top of his voice, and we're coming down to the very last moments of the game. I'm watching the clock. He's watching the clock. Maryland is trying not to score. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a game like this where the other team cannot not score, but... You know, the defense has tightened up since I'm in there. They're only getting about eight yards of play, and, and we're backing up towards the end zone. Now, I'm pretty good at math, and so I'm watching the clock, and I'm trying to avoid having to hear my dad say something good about my play. And so calcul I'm calculating the time, and we're literally going to end up the game with us, me as a defensive linebacker, with my feet in the end zone. Good news is the bus is on. We didn't even have field house there to change clothes so we had to get in the bus and go back to the school and the bus is only 20 30 yards behind the end zone I'm only 40 yards from safety and so I'm watching and I think now my dad I'm, I'm the baby in the family my dad is now in his 50s and he's a little bit overweight had a couple more chicken dinners that he should have you know he believed that you ought to buffet your body scripturally you know maybe that word's buffet I the Greek text is tough there and so I'm thinking, you know, I can outrun him to the bus. So I just kind of wave from the window. Well, the gun goes off. I turn and look. My mistake I made. My dad is already leaping the wall. He's galloping across the field. He catches me about three yards short of the bus. He should have been playing, not me. He, he turns me around, looks at me with a big smile and said, Son, you guys look great today. I'm thinking, my dad doesn't drink. It was not hot enough to have hallucinated during this game. And I'm thinking, what was he watching? And then he finished the sentence. He said, you guys look great today in the huddle. Well, I never seriously considered the huddle as part of the game. But on Sunday, when we had to review the films, I decided since there wasn't much else to watch, I would watch the huddle. I was amazed. We huddled up perfectly round. We held hands in the huddle. I mean, we, we did. And most of us still had clean uniforms. You know, I wasn't on the ground very often since I didn't make many tackles. And, and, and my dad was actually pretty accurate about this. And I thought about it. It's kind of a parable of the church, isn't it? You know, we huddle up and we look good in the huddle. Yeah, we, we were in a huddle this morning, kind of a spiritual huddle, and we sing about the glory of God, and we talk about that, and we may even talk about how we share this with us, but the reality is most of us will break the huddle today, and we won't talk much about what we sang about here again until next Sunday when we huddle up again. 
You know, we sometimes get in the huddle and we talk about what could be. What, what would happen if everyone sitting in this sanctuary today committed that within the next 12 months you would build a relationship with an unsaved person with the goal of bringing them into fellowship? Do you know this church could double in a single year? It could. It's, it's not that hard. We, we call plays we don't ever run. Well, Pastor Ryan on Wednesday nights, and this is an unapologetic argument for showing up on Wednesday night. It is Paul and I's favorite service. We love worshiping with you guys, but we love just getting around the table and talking with folks. It's how we've gotten to know people in the life of the church. And, and I love Pastor Ryan's Wednesday night Bible study. So he's taken us into the book of Timothy, and we're looking again at the early church. Because I tell you, my passion, one of the reasons I went to Cambridge to do a Ph.D. is I wanted to know what that first century church was like and how that first century church was structured and why today we cannot experience that same kind of dynamic. You, you look at that church, their first baptismal service was 3,000 people. Some scholars think it could have been 10,000. They didn't count women and children. So if there were families baptized during that time, and it tells us that that church literally turned the world of that day upside down. Now, my question is, has Jesus changed? Has the Great Commission been altered somewhere? Is the power of the Holy Spirit in us and through us today any less than it was in that first century church? Now, the reality is that the answer to that is no. Everything is same except that we seem to be more in the huddle than we are on the field of play. So this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about the New Testament church, and Pastor Ryan's already equipped you to be in sword drills, so in kind of the introduction of this message, we'll be looking at several different texts. We will find our home in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In fact, over the next two Sundays, I'm going to look at one of the very first passages about the church. If you look at Paul's letters, they were written before the gospel, so we're looking at some of the very earliest writings. We'll peek at Galatians in a moment. Then we're going to sit down First Thessalonians chapter 5. And then next Sunday, when you're here, we're going to go to one of the later epistles out of prison, the Ephesian letter. So let's begin to look together at this story. In Matthew chapter 16, I'm just going to kind of get you there. So any of these texts you want to turn to, this is the very first moment that Jesus would ever allow someone to articulate the reality that he was the Messiah. You remember, as you start the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, that means we see them together, Synoptic. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written historically, taking a kind of chronological look at Jesus' life. All of those begin with a period of time that's referred to by scholars as the Messianic secret. You, you realize that you'll read sometimes, Jesus heals somebody, and he'll say what? Don't you tell anybody. Don't say anything, because there were all sorts of ideas of what the Messiah would do, and many were very motivated by politics in that day, and even in Acts chapter 1, when we get there, the disciples are still thinking the Messiah is going to be kind of a political figure, and so Jesus keeps saying, don't tell anybody. Well, we get to Matthew chapter 16, and in Matthew chapter 16, the, he, Jesus asks, two questions. What do people say? And, and they have all sorts of speculation. Then he says, now you've been with me this time. Who is it? What do you believe? And Peter, kind of as the spokesman of the 12, says what? We believe that you are indeed 
the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now that's incredible confession. I, I can only imagine that Peter may have stammered as he tried to get this confession out of his mouth. These men had left home, they had left all their, their careers, they had followed him, and, and they've seen him heal. They've heard people in the crowd shout out things like, Son of David, Son of David, which is a messianic title. But when Jesus is now first confessed as Messiah. Listen to what he says. He says, Peter, indeed, you are right. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. I'm going to start in verse 17 to get to the one you have on the text. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not overpower it. And I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth, be bound in heaven. What do you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Now what I want you to grasp is in this momentous occasion, the first time Jesus allows himself to be declared Messiah, his first response to that is that his messianic ministry would be accomplished by building, establishing the church. The word is ekklesia, to call out. It's a term that's used in the Old Testament for the congregation of Israel, the anointed people of God who are going to join him in his mission as he blesses the nations of the earth. And Israel had failed to comprehend the global scope of that mission. So Jesus, now looking at these disciples, said, listen, I'm starting over, but I'm also have continuity with what God has been doing from the beginning of time, and that is to call out a people unto myself, and they will join me in the task of reaching the nations with the gospel that is myself. Now listen, I, I don't know whether you get this or not, but the church is a unique institution in all of eternity. It is the bride of Jesus. It is his field, his covenant community. Let me give you a definition. The church, and you can write this down if you want to, is a covenant community. And that's why, you ever wonder, why do Baptists all have these altar calls and ask people to join the church? Because it's a covenant. It's a covenant relationship. It's not some mechanical duty that you do, but it's a covenant relationship of born-again people. That's why uh, you... you we, Pastor Ryan, if you've talked with him about becoming a part of this church, first thing he's going to ask you, as he did me, is tell me about your relationship with Jesus. Because you really don't, you're not born into the church, you're born into Christ, and then you express that covenant relationship with the church because it's a born-again covenant community and relationship with Jesus Christ for the redemption of the world, for the expansion of His kingdom until He returns. Every part of that definition is important. And that is that a church is going to be his covenant community relationship. Any of you remember in the book of Acts how it starts? It's funny that you read these uh, books and you see them so many times that you sometimes just let your eyes just jump over a linking phrase. So let me invite you to go to Acts 1-1 for just a moment. told you it would be a bit of a sword drill before we got started here. You remember that Acts is a two-volume work, Luke-Acts. Luke has, tells the first volume, and he gets us up to the story of the resurrection, then the 
the great powerful ascension and the promise of a covenant that's coming and the kingdom that's coming. But now look at Acts 1.1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. I was actually reading that to my New Testament class at North Greenville University, and it just kind of stunned me that I had read it a thousand times and never noticed it. What well, it kind of gets your attention there? At this moment in time, Jesus is dead. He's been raised again. He's sitting on the right hand of the Father, but he's no longer in his earthly incarnation. Jesus of Nazareth is no longer with them. So Luke in his second volume, said, you know, the first thing I wrote you, this Luke gospel, that was about what Jesus began to do and teach. Now, how is Jesus still active on planet earth? And the answer is the book of Acts, which is what? The church planting story that Jesus is still alive. Jesus is still bringing in his father's kingdom, but he's doing so as churches are planted and churches are growing and churches are planting churches. That's the whole scheme of the book of Acts. That this is still what God is at work doing in planet earth. So in these two weeks, we're going to look at how God structured that church to accomplish its kingdom purpose. Now, the early leaders of the church in the book of Acts, and we're still in Acts for a moment if you want to, uh, were the apostles. Now go over to Acts chapter 6. Some of you are very familiar with this. You've been in Baptist life for a long time because our diaconate ministry starts here. So the apostles we would have called the early church staff. Now what happens is what God is doing in the life of our church, and that's what excites me so much about being a part of this. Listen to this. As at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, the church was growing. The church was designed to grow. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will what? I will build my church. We, we've grown so occasion to the fact that many churches that we know are not growing. In fact, many are declining. And, and of course, COVID even exaggerated that. But in Southern Baptist life, it's true across the board. And so we see that so often that when we find ourselves in a growing church, it seems to be an anomaly. But it was the design because the church is that covenant community that's going to be used by the Spirit of God to advance the kingdom of God until the return of Jesus for His church. It's the bride. Did you know the church is the only earthly organization that you can belong to in heaven? Not even marriage. You see, marriage is intimate as it is. We're not going to give in marriage. I don't know fully what that means. I do know that the intimacy that we will have with one another will even supersede the intimacy that we know with that life mate. Is that amazing? But the church comes down out of heaven, adorned for its bride. That means we can't play church. We can't, we can't take it as casual. There's nothing that you will do on planet earth outside of your relationship to your own family children as a priest, man, that you will accomplish in the life of the church. So here we find something going on. The disciples were increasing a number, and a complaint arose. I've said to deacons, I do a lot of deacons' retreats, there's no reason for deacons to exist in the life of the church unless the church is growing and there's complaints. And deacons sometimes say, well, Man, I didn't know I don't want to be a deacon. All I hear is complaints. You know what the good news is? It means we're growing. 
You see, I, I went through a growth spurt late between ninth and 10th grade, and I was growing so fast that every night I'd wake up, my elbows would hurt, my knees would hurt. My mom would come back, and she'd put liniment on them. It was so strong you couldn't go back to sleep. The smell was so bad, if any of you remember that liniment. But my dad would get me out of bed, and he'd say, come over here, boy. He'd stand me up by the door, and he'd take a ruler and a pencil, and he'd mark it. And he'd back me up and say, hey, look, I think you cheated sometimes. But he would say, hey, you're taller today. <laughs> if you want to play sports, getting taller and bigger is a good thing. And so he would say, hey, you're growing. Now, what happens when the church grows? Well, God gives this strategy, this plan, that the apostles can continue to do the emphasis on their preaching ministry, prayer and preaching. And so there are deacons now that come alongside their servants, table waiters, that come alongside of the pastor's staff so that they can continue to do what God intends it to do. Now, as we find the persecution that began to accomplish there in the Jerusalem church led to the point that the church was scattered. Sometimes we think, oh, that's a bad thing, but here it was a good thing because in the persecution of Stephen, they went out and some of the folks planted a church in Antioch. Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 13, it's the church that plants every other church. So what do they do? They send Paul and Barnabas out on a missionary journey. So Acts 14, 23 tells us that everywhere they went on this missionary journey, that they appointed elders in every church. That's the word presbyteros. Some of you have friends that are Presbyterian. They get their, their kind of their church governance from this, but literally the word presbyteros came out of the Jewish synagogue background, and it had to do with the one who was the pastor of the church. For example, and we'll give you a couple of phrases you can put down. 1 Timothy 5.17 talks about the elders who direct the affairs of the church are whether worthy of double honor, especially those who work at preaching and teaching. 1 Peter 5.1, Peter speaks as being a fellow elder with those who shepherd and watch over and guide the flock. So we begin with the fact that these pastoral leaders that God has given us have three unique and primary tasks that are going to be followed the entirety of Scripture. So that task is to preach, teach, to oversee, administrate, and to provide for pastoral care. So in these two weeks, we're going to look at one of the earliest letters, then we're going to look at one of the prison epistles to show you this pattern that goes all the way through the scriptures. So go ahead and look at Acts, or excuse me, over in Galatians chapter 6 just for a moment. And we're only going to touch at this one to show you something that'll very interesting in how the church develops. In Acts, or Galatians chapter 6, brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore this one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself that you will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. Fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work. Then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Now listen, two, two really critical things about how the church is designed by God. 
Every member of the church, all of us, are gifted to minister to one another and through the church. Now, we're not going to have enough time this morning to look at the whole thing about spiritual gifts, but it's clear here that all of us are involved in ministry. We don't hire a staff to do ministry. We are ministers, all of us. All of us are equipped and called God-ordained to be part of what's happening. And so uh, Paul says each must bear his own load. 1 Corinthians 3 said that, that we, uh, we're going to build with one of the other wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stone. So a Christian does not have an option as to whether he or she builds in the life of the church. That's what we were saved to do. That's why God placed us in the body. We will have an option of the material that we use, and judgment for our works will be based upon that. You know, I, I've taught in several different seminary settings, and, and students will tell me sometimes, you know, I, I don't, and, and I was president of an institution, the only time I had students come complain to me, they'll say, well, the professor asked me something on the exam that he didn't tell me I was accountable for. That kind of frustrates you. know, you, you didn't know that you needed to read this book, and all of a sudden, on the exam, that book shows up. And I, I want to tell you something today so that you don't stand before God and say, no, nobody told me this. All of us are gifted and empowered by the Spirit to build God's church through the life of His community, and one day we will be held accountable for that. First Corinthians 3, Paul said, I planted Apollos water, but God Himself gave the increase. It's supernatural activity. What an exciting thing it is that God wants to cause the increase through us. Then he says, now be careful how you build wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stone, because the day will reveal it. In fact, in our Sunday school class this morning, we talked about fire, where it has a purifying or a destroying effect. And Paul is so careful there. He says, not, I'm not talking about you could lose your salvation. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But there will be a judgment of works and the reward that you will have for the way you've built upon this community. So there are two things very clear in Galatians. That's the earliest Pauline writing, the earliest New Testament writing. All of us have a role to play in the life of the church. But even at this early stage, there were leaders, pastors, teachers, who were even paid or remunerated for their tasks. This is so early in the church that it's important for us to see. So now we go to our text. That's the introduction to our sermon. And so I hope you brought a sandwich. We're going over to 1 Thessalonians now. So we're in 1 Thessalonians. Paul had founded this community, but soon after the founding... The Jewish community was upset because there were a lot of God-fears. Now, a God-fear was a Gentile who had attached themselves to the synagogue. And, and, and they were oftentimes very generous towards the synagogue. And so when Paul preaches, he goes in a missionary event. He goes in and preaches first in the synagogue. And a number of the Jews and God-fearers began to say, this is what we've been waiting for. This is the fulfillment. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So that church was birthed there, and, and all of a sudden the community, many of the Jewish leaders kind of had an uprising, and Paul and the apostles, the missionary team, had to leave pretty quickly. Now, Paul is concerned that persecution has broken out in relationship to the establishment of that church, and that some of them as brand new Christians may have been discouraged by that persecution, so he sends an emissary back with this letter we call 1 Thessalonians. So if you've read it, and we're getting ready, I think, to study it in Sunday school, so it'll be a good tie-in there. But you're going to find 
that uh, as he writes this letter back, the first several chapters are about a defense of his ministry there, that he had to say, I was like a nursing mother. I was like an imploring father to you. And, and then he says, man, when I heard that you still love me and that you still stand, I was so overwhelmed with joy. I couldn't wait. Then the second half turns into discussion of the second coming. Now, a part of that was that someone had died, perhaps during that persecution or because of that persecution, and they were concerned that if they've, if they've died prior to that and it's my relative or my friend or my wife, uh, what's going to happen when the Lord returns? They were so excited about the return of the Lord. And so Paul has to, first of all, explain, hey, they're not going to have a back seat. In fact, they're going to have a front row view of this because the saints will come with him in the air. So if you've got a, a saint that's gone on to glory, they're going to have a ringside seat. If the rapture occurs during our lifetime, they'll get to cheer when you come up. Good news. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 5, he has some people that are excited about knowing the times and epochs. I don't know about Ryan, but as a pastor, I'd have more people come to me and say, oh, I need to do something in the book of Revelation. I want to know when. I, I don't know when. If Jesus didn't know when, I don't know when. And so if you want me to do a series on Revelation, you're still not going to get any closer to the date because the date is God's sovereign priority, and He's already set it, and He's going to direct it. I tell people I am a pan-millennials. I believe it's all going to pan out. And I'm happy about it, and I'm ready when he comes. And I'm like the early church said, come Lord Jesus. I mean, the way things are looking now, his coming is going to be a great joy and delight. But, so the question Paul does is at the end of this, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, he says, listen, you already know enough that what you need to do is encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. So, if our goal is to encourage and build one another up, the question is, how? And Paul is going to give us the first lengthy explanation of how the church is designed for precisely this. So, let's look at the text. I'm actually going to read it now for you. But we request you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, who have charge over you in the Lord, and who give you instructions. Same three things we saw as we began to look at this in Acts and even in the pastorals when we'll come back. So that though you esteem them highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. Now we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see to it that no one repays another with evil, for evil, but always seek after what is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, everything, give thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophetic utterance, examine it carefully, hold fast to the good, abstain from the evil. So let's kind of take it apart. First of all, we're going to find in this passage that relationships are the key to all leadership. Paul exhorts the brethren. Now, that's brethren and cistern. That's all of us. So those of us who would kind of consider ourselves as laity in the life of the church, says Paul says to them, first of all, that I want you to appreciate and to esteem highly those who are in pastoral leadership. Why? 
for their work's sake. The issue at stake is our mission. It's not about my personal preferences. It's not about whether I even like the way the pastor parts his hair. He doesn't have enough hair to part, so I'm sorry. It wasn't a good illustration here. You know, the reality is I would sometimes in Norfolk, and I, I was there for 11 years as a pastor, 10 years, and I'd preach on this passage, and I'd say, I know I'm not some of you guys' favorite pastor, and I'd see people nodding in agreement. I wasn't actually trying to get an agreement out of that. But, you know, your favorite pastor generally is someone who married you, who buried your spouse, who led you to the Lord, may have baptized you. It's a very kind of emotional attachment. And I would tell them, there's room in, my, in your heart for more of us than one. The reality is, it's God brings a unique staff mix for every moment of time because He's directing His church. See, 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says, He placed us in the body as He Chose. So this is not a personality contest. It's not a preferential contest. The reality is it's about the mission of the church with this awesome responsibility. You see, we have the keys of the kingdom. What is bound here is going to be bound for eternity. Do you understand that? When I, on Wednesday night, we hear reports about the children that are on our campus, and we hear reports about what God is doing in their lives, and, and my heart is just so filled with joy because I know that that decision is an eternal decision. Do you, do you understand this? What happens in the life of this church, whether it's in the choir or it's in the preschool, that these have eternal consequences? We're not just talking about life and death. We're talking about eternal redemption or eternal damnation. There's only two options. You see, you're going to live for all eternity. The question is, where? And the church has that mission and has that authority and power. Now, let's look at the threefold pastoral task, and you'll find that they follow exactly what we've already found, and it'll be the same when we get over to Timothy and the pastor is taking us through that text. But let's look at it. Number one, diligently labor among. The Greek word that's used here indicates demanding labor that's involved in pastoral ministry. The labor here also speaks to pastoral care, which must be provided to all the flock. This task elsewhere is described by the word poimenos. Now, I know I'm giving you a little Greek lesson here, but that's the one we most often will use. We'll speak of our pastor. It's poimenos. It means to shepherd. It has to do with that function of leading the congregation to be able to, to labor among, that is, among the sheep, that is, that caring function that the pastor's role is to work hard in administrating that task. Not, you're going to see in a moment, it's not necessarily doing that task as much as it is administrating that task because that pastoral care task is our privilege. You're going to notice in a moment. But the reality is this word kopiao means hard labor. Now, as a pastor's son and a pastor myself, I can testify that pastoral ministry is demanding. Not just because of the hours that it involves, because you're never... One of the things that used to frustrate me sometimes, I would kind of drive home from church and I'd had a funeral or I'd had a wedding or I'd had other events or I was in a counseling thing and I'd see a couple of good old boys sitting out back of the yard on Friday afternoon, you know, and they'd already kind of gotten out the grill and I'm thinking... 
that would be a good way to live. I, I wish some days that I thought finished. One of the things I'll tell you about ministry, you never think you've finished well. It's because there's something else you can do. Now, that may be true where you work, but let me tell you why it's so difficult in the church. Well, let me let Paul tell you. Turn to 2 Corinthians for a moment. It's a rather interesting passage. Remember, Paul had some folks in there that thought they were super apostles, and they wanted to boast all the time about their visions and all the things it was. So Paul finally says, okay, let me boast. So come to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and listen to this man boast. Okay, three times, I'm going to start in verse 25. It's a longer passage, but you'll get the sense of this. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I spent in the deep. Frequent journeys, dangers, rivers, dangers, robbers, dangers from a countryman, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea. Do you get the notion here? Now I want you to underline verse 28. Apart from such external things, shipwreck, beaten, that's external? You want to translate external different? Trivial. Apart from such trivial matters, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for the churches. Listen, 29. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? You see, one of the reasons that we pray for and we love and esteem our pastor is because I, I want to tell you from experience that when one of you are sick, your staff feels the illness of that, literally. And when one of you sins, there's that great concern and passion for you. And Paul said, I, I, can, I can handle the shipwreck. I can handle the beating. With the, but this is what gives me great concern. You see, pastoral ministry is kopiao. It is hard labor among the sheep. Secondly, he says, have charge over you. The Greek word literally means taking the lead over. It is the function elsewhere described by the Greek word episkopos. Some of you may know friends who are episcopal, and it, it's used for the overseer in that context. I think perhaps wrongly it's not a regional thing. In fact, in 1 Timothy, when he gets to chapter 3, he says here are the, the, the requirements to be an episkopos. So he's talking about a pastor there. We know that. So all of these terms, whether it's presbyteros or poimenos or episkopos, all refer to the same function. They are functions, not titles. We tend to give people titles. They had functions. So one of the other tasks that our pastor is required to discharge is to be the episkopos, this challenging, necessary task of administrating or giving direction to the church. Truthfully, most of us pastors would prefer to defer this task to others because it often creates challenges and it is not always appreciated. Yet it's essential to the mission of the church. In fact, if you turn over to Hebrews quickly, and if you can't turn quickly, it'll be on your screen. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 speaks to this. He says, obey your leaders. And we don't like words like obey and submit, but there we go. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, but this would be unprofitable 
with you. So the call for obedience and submission, words we don't like to read, there's more, and that is the attitude that makes it possible for our leaders to do it with joy and not grief. And why, we ask, do we do that? Because if we didn't, it would be unprofitable. In other words, we're back to the mission. If we have the keys of the kingdom, eternity is at stake. If our mission is His mission, then the requirements there are because of the mission. It would be unprofitable for us. And I do a lot of conferences, you might imagine, different churches, different settings. And occasionally I will someone say, well, um, uh, how, how do you keep a leader from turning that authority, administrative authority, into tyrannical leadership? Well, the answer is right here in the text. That is, those who keep watch over your souls will give an account. People used to say, did you fear your deacons? Or do you fear your trustees when I was president of Southwestern Seminary? I said, no, I fear one, and that's holy God. And I realize that I'm not standing accountable to my deacons. I'm not standing accountable to my church. I'm not even standing accountable. I am accountable in that kind of relationship we have here on earth. I'm not accountable to the trustees, but I am accountable to a holy God. And I promise you, that's what I look for when I'm looking for a pastor's heart. When I was president of a seminary, I'd have guys that could exegete Greek and everything else, but they didn't have a heart that said, I understand that I'm standing under holy God accountable for the sheep that God has given me. It's an onerous task, but it's a joyous task. It's the task that God has gifted and equipped the pastors to do. Third one is give you instruction. That's the preaching, teaching function. We've already noted that as the pastoral priority in Acts chapter 6. They can devote themselves to the ministry of prayer and the Word. And when they did that, what happens in chapter 6 verse 7 is that Luke tells us that the church kept exploding in growth. And that many of those Jews of that day were becoming followers of Christ. Now, that's the ministry of the pastor staff. Now, let's talk about our ministry, the ministry of the laity. Notice what he does right here in verse 14. We urge you, brethren. We're back to brethren. So, the brethren and the sister were called to love and esteem highly, our leaders. Now, we come back to this. We urge you, brethren, three things right here. Admonish the unruly. You know, it was interesting when I first went to Norfolk, and I was a new pastor there. I had regular appointments that people would come in to tell me what I needed to do as pastor of the church. That's okay. I, I needed to hear. Some of them wanted me to start this kind of ministry, and someone wanted me to start that kind of ministry. And then occasionally I'd have someone come in and say, you know, pastor, we, we've got a problem in our Sunday school class, and you need to go visit this person because they're really creating a disturbance. Or somebody come in and say, you know, we haven't seen so-and-so in a long time. I don't know what's happened, but they're just not in church anymore. And my response to them based on this text was, God put them on your heart because that's your ministry. Listen to it. Admonish the unruly. It's a Greek word. It's a fun word. A talk toy. Sounds good, doesn't it? It's just fun. You know what it means? Stand out of rank. It's a military term. I had a professor at Wake Forest that was the he was in the dictionary when it says absent-minded klutz professor. He admitted it. He would show up in class, one brown shoe, one black shoe. He kind of looked down, just kind of laughed at himself. When he walked across the campus, he kind of looked like a, a penguin with a broken foot, if they have feet, whatever that is they 
wobble on. In fact, he told a story about himself. He was in the military, and his, uh, his sergeant would bribe him not to come when they were having the uh, march by because he was so bad at trying to keep pace with the troops that he would always be out of step. I talked to him, out of rank. Now, these attack toys show up again in 2 Thessalonians, so I'm going to let you just flip over a couple of pages, and we're going to find out what they were doing here, these attack toys, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, he's not to eat either. Some among you are living an undisciplined life, and, and they've become to act like busybodies, now, such persons we command, exhort the Lord Jesus to work quietly in fashion and eat their own bread, but as for you, brethren, don't grow weary. So what had happened is that these who thought the second coming was around the corner had just dropped out of work. So they were expecting the church to kind of foot the bills. Now, they had a lot of time on their hands, so they decided to meddle in everybody else's business. Remember my first church in Galax? had a retired school teacher who thought it was her God-given task to correct most of my sermon, uh, agreement of subject and verb, etc., and the church newsletter. You remember when we used to have a church newsletter and we'd mail it out to everybody? So we would prepare it, and as soon as she got her copy, she'd show up at the secretary's desk with all of the things circled that were... So I suggested to her, since she was so gifted in doing that, why didn't she come in on Monday and proofread it before we mail it out? Now, that didn't appeal to her at all. She would rather wait till it was mailed out and kind of a busybody. You get my point? Yeah, there, there, there are times that we all have that temptation because we kind of think we, we kind of know how things ought to go. Now, what happens when there is a busybody that way, somebody behaving in such a manner that they're out of rank and they're hurting the mission of the church, it is our responsibility to go to them in love and admonish them to join us in the mission. It's the mission. Number two, encourage the faint-hearted. Here in Thessalonica, some had nearly given up on their spiritual journey because of the persecution that had accompanied their conversion. Many were Jews that would be considered heretics by their own family, do you realize in Acts 6-1 that those widows probably had been abandoned by their own children? That's what a risk it was to join this Christian community. They did so at the peril of what would happen to them. That's true of our Muslim friends around the world. When they come to faith in Christ, they're abandoned by their own family. It takes courage to take that stand. And some were being discouraged, so he says now, all of us have the opportunity to go encourage them. If you know people in our church who have nearly given up on the test, don't assign them to someone else. They're family. They're our responsibility. Third one, help the weak. Young believers are frequently weak in their faith, and they need help. That's first church in Wolf Creek, Kentucky. I led an old boy to the Lord that, Spent more time in jail than he did out of jail. He just kind of liked to fight, you know, and he would kind of be at the nightclub on Friday night and be in jail early on Saturday morning. I led him to the Lord, and it was an amazing, miraculous conversion story. But about four weeks later, I happened to notice he wasn't sitting in his place, and then a week after that, he wasn't again. And 
we were on the weekends only. We'd go down on Friday, Saturday, or Saturday, Sunday. It was a weekend church while I was at seminary. And so I'm back the next Sunday, and one of my deacons said to me, he said, you know, where's, where's Billy? Where's your big convert? I said, I don't know. Do you? He said, well, yeah. And he told me where he was, and I had to think. I wonder how he knew where he was, but that's another story. So on Sunday afternoon after church, Paul and I went up there. Sure enough, about four weeks of beard, I walked Billy outside, and the only place we had to go was a hog lot outside of his house. They grew a lot of pigs down there. Pig farming was big. I thought so much of the prodigal son story as we went out there, and he just kind of dropped his head. And I said, Billy, God loves you. He still can forgive you, and so help me. He just fell right on his knees right in the middle of that hog lot. Then he looked up at me, and he said, Pastor, I believe you that God can forgive me, but those people in the church never will, will they? I thought, boy, here's the week. So what do we do? It's kind of like the song we sometimes do what? Shoot our own wounded. The reality was that he needed that church fellowship. He needed us to be able to go to him, put an arm around him and say, listen, your father wants you to come home. Have you ever thought about that parable of the of the prodigal son, what would have happened how much earlier if the elder brother had gone to look for him? You see, that's our role. It's our privilege. Now, quickly, and these really are quickly, there are 11 imperatives. These are present imperatives, which means they are ongoing, and they mean they are non-negotiable. They're right in the text, so you don't have to write them down. Be patient with everyone. Living's family's hard. You know, I have three daughters. One wife, that's a good thing. I never won a vote in our family. It was just kind of four to one all the time. And, and the fact are we at different stages, and we have different interests, and so sometimes just, and now it's just Paul and I together, and it still takes patience, doesn't it? Just to be in one little family. Now, we gather together in a big family, and it's going to take patience. It's a reality of that. Be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil. Number three, seek after that which is good for one another and even other people, i.e. the unsaved. Rejoice always, even in the midst of You know how we can rejoice always? Because we know Romans 8, 28, 29, that God is at work in everything for good. So we can rejoice in the midst of that. Pray without ceasing. Everything give thanks to God. It's His will for you. Don't quench the Spirit. Now here's the reality. We can quench the Spirit by our lack of attention to God's Word and our lack of obedience. You know, a lot of people say, well, if God wants our church to grow, it'll grow with or without us. No, the answer is He's designed it to grow with us, and we can, in fact, quench the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterance. Now, that's not prediction. 1 Corinthians 14, 3 says it's the application of Scripture. That's what happens in this pulpit. That's what happens on Wednesday night. Hopefully, that's what happens in our Sunday school classes, that when the Word of God is applied to our lives, that we don't despise it. In other words, even if it's convicting, we welcome it because it transforms us, renewing our minds and our hearts. Now, examine everything carefully. That's a responsibility we have. That's why I love the fact that our pastor teaches doctrine. He stays focused on the gospel because we've got to examine that because it's easy. Lots of denominations and lots of churches have lost their doctrinal integrity. Examine everything carefully. Hold to the good. You know what that means? Obey it. 
doesn't mean just, oh yeah, that's good. I'm glad to hear all those truths. No, embrace those truths. The Word of God is what transforms our life. So we hold to it. We embrace it. And that allows us to abstain from evil. And you say, wow, that's a huge mouthful of a task. So I want to read the little phrase here in verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you. He will bring it to pass. <laughs> that is such good news. You know, when I read that passage now as a lay person, and I got to look at all the things God requires of me and my lay ministry and this phase of our life, and I think, what a tremendous responsibility. I, I understand and I, and I appreciate the, the responsibility that our staff, our pastoral staff has for us, but now all of a sudden I'm on the other side of that, and I'm looking at the responsibilities that I have as one of the brethren, and I think, oh my word, am I capable of this? And the answer is no but the Holy Spirit working through me. Faithful. Faithful is He who called you to this task. And He will do it. Let's just bow our heads together. I don't know what God has said to you through His Word this morning. It's not my Word. I don't have any good words for you, but God does. So whatever God said to you, maybe this altar you want to come down, and maybe some of you need to join the church. You say, what's important about that? It's covenant community. So you want to be in covenant with this church family for the, the advancement of the kingdom until the return of the kingdom. That, that's how we do it. That's how we signify our desire to do it. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. If you don't know Christ as Savior, you can never be part of His church because you're born again into that relationship. Maybe you're here and you're like me. You're a church member that needs to come to this altar and say, Father, I... I've been negligent. I, I've, I've been negligent on some of the things that you've called me to do. I, I know that there are people in my class who, who are discouraged. They're faint-hearted. And you've brought them to my mind and my heart, and I've been praying for them, but I've not reached out to them. What is it that God's saying to you? Father, right now we pray that your Holy Spirit would do that which you alone can do, and that's bring a harvest to the preaching of this Word. You tell us that the seed is good, it won't return void. But you warn us that the soil can reject the seed. Lord, if there's a hard heart in any of us, we ask your Spirit to rip it open. If there's thorns or thistles, we pray that you would rip them out, even at the pain it may cause us. Lord, if any of us have fallen by the wayside, we pray that the adversary would not take this seed, but we pray that it would be that seed that reels a hundredfold. Lord, uh, some of us need to accept you as Savior today. Others need to say, I want to be a part of this covenant community. This is what God's saying to me. Others, maybe even in leadership positions, just want to come and kneel here at this altar and say, Father, I renew my covenant with this community, your bride in this place, in Seneca Baptist. Lord, you alone know our hearts. Reveal to us what we must do to say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.